so Cooper struggled deeply with depression. Um, mm. He several times throughout his life attempted to, to commit suicide mm. and he, he really deeply struggled. Um, and part of that struggle that I find to be particularly tragic is at one point he had a dream that he believed to be from God, um, which he believed to be God telling him that he was forever lost and outside of grace and could mm. never be saved. And um, he believed it was true and it didn't matter who tried to talk him out of it. He was just relentless. You know, the, the gospel is true, but it's not true for me. Mm. And so he lived not only with this depression, but also with very deep despair for, mm. throughout the last several decades of his life. But in the midst of that, there was, there was one moment where he had a, another dream <laughs> in which he, he just describes it as having this, this deep sense of God's closeness. It was like, you know, he was stuck in dark so much. And it was like this moment of life, light. And he said, I love thee more now than those who see thee daily. And I have just found that to be such a beautiful statement. It kind of brings tears to my eyes a little bit. Mm. Just, you know, he was so stuck in this darkness and so deep in despair. And yet there was still that, that very stubborn seed of faith in his heart. I wonder what was it like To see a light so low in the sky To follow it blindly To see it shining so bright Friends, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I don't know why I opened up like that. Like that was creepy. Friends. <laughs> oh man. Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. Uh, my name is Glenn. I'm your host. And uh, this is episode number 135. And uh, it's it's a good one. They're, they're all good ones. But this one just feels much needed right now. Uh, it's a conversation with Diana Groover, and uh, Diana wrote a book called Companions in the Darkness, Seven Saints Who Struggled with Depression and Doubt. Uh, this book, if you're going through anything, like I'm not talking about like even like full-blown depression, like if you're just struggling with doubt in your life, a little bit of anxiety, or it is full-blown depression and you're having a really hard time, this book is so insightful because in those times of depression, you typically feel what? Alone, right? Like nobody understands me. Nobody could possibly understand what I'm going through. I'm alone. Uh, Everybody's going to think I'm crazy, that I'm weird. Nobody's ever struggled with this before. What's the matter with me? And it's so easy to withdraw and get stuck in our own little bubble. This book is a reminder that even the greatest saints in the history of the universe, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr., these people struggled in their own way. And she tells you their story. She pulls out pieces of wisdom, pearls of wisdom to share with you. 
It is so good. You've got to hit pause, go to Amazon, type in Diana Groover, G-R-U-V-E-R, or even better yet, go to the show notes and just click the link. It'll take you right over there uh, to the book, but you will not be sorry. couple things before we hit play, before we roll the tape on the episode. Uh, I'm really excited about this. So I got something to share with you that is just absolutely nuts. So on February 1st, I'm going to be talking to uh, Pete Rollins. We're going to be recording an episode together. Uh, he is one of my favorite... Ooh, he's like a philosopher slash theologian slash scholar slash ball of sarcasm. <laughs> and all of those things mixed together just really... Uh, that really does it for me. I just love his stuff. He is He's so good. And uh, his stuff has made a, a significant impact on my own life. And uh, he was on one of my, he's one of my, on my list of top 10 people to talk to when I started the podcast. And uh, I've now made my way through that list. Uh, I have one more person to talk to on that list, but he was on the top 10. And uh, I'm really excited to get to talk to him. Uh, but he does a course every year for Lent. It's a virtual course. And uh, the course is called Atheism for Lent. What, right? What the heck is that? Now, he's going to talk all about it, so I'm not going to go very deep here, but just like a surface level idea. Uh, he, he tackles the idea that, like, let's, let's take a look at all of the critiques that atheism has of Christianity. Let's take a look at the critiques. But rather than judge the critiques, he says, uh, let's let the critiques judge us. So that we almost strip away the the beliefs about God that we take for granted and really look at what we believe and then come out the other end, uh, perhaps having rethought some things, uh, but being in a significantly different place than we were before. So anyway, this course is just bonkers and it's normally $45, but Pete is allowing me to give away three free tickets to this course. So the course starts on the first day of Lent, which is Ash Wednesday. And I want to say that's the 17th. Bear with me as I pull up my calendar live and in person. Yes, the 17th of February, the first day of Lent. Lent is 40 days. So this course will run for 40 days. There's it's, And it's stuff you can do like on your own time. You don't have to sign up to be at a certain place a certain time. Like he makes stuff available to you. You can read it on your own, watch the videos on your own. I think he does some Facebook live stuff. If you can watch it live, great. If you can't, you do it later. But really, just really, really good stuff. And I'm so excited that three tickets we get to give away. So how do you win? If you go to the website, whatifproject.net, and you'll see a tab that says Atheism for Lent, click that. There's a short description of how you can win there's a form at the bottom. You fill out the form. You shoot me an email. And then there's other ways to get entered as well. So you can kind of get your name thrown in the mix one time, two times, ten times, uh, depending on how many of the things that you choose to engage in. But uh, everybody will have an opportunity to win. And it's so exciting. I cannot wait to talk to him uh, and share the episode with you. The episode will go up uh, the following weeks. I'm talking to him on the 1st. The episode will go live on the 8th. Uh, I will announce the winner uh, for the tickets on the 12th, and then the course starts on the 17th. So really good stuff. I'm super excited. 
And uh, good luck, my friend. Good luck. I hope that you I hope that you win. Uh, it's really, really good. Uh, special music today is from my friend Forrest Clay. Uh, he he is doing really interesting things. Uh, he is trying to get a record off the ground. He just had a Kickstarter trying to raise some money to do some uh, producing type stuff and some mixing. Uh, but he is he's got some 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 songs out there on uh, Apple Music and Spotify and just really good stuff that puts a lot of words on feelings. Uh, a lot of us have feelings about God and faith and our walk with God that we can't always put words on. His music helps you put words on it, and it's really good stuff. So head over to Apple Music, Spotify, uh, put in Forest Clay, download his stuff, pass it around all the different things. Uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place to go to support the show financially. Uh, monthly tier of giving, $3 a month, $7 a month, yada, yada, yada. Every tier gets its own reward. Uh, if you don't like the subscription thing, buymeacoffee.com slash whatifproject is a place to make a one-time contribution, $5, $10, $100, whatever. If something you came across something with the podcast that struck you, an episode, a blog, uh, whatever, you're like, man, I wish I could take Glenn out for coffee. We can't do that because we're in a pandemic. Uh, you also might not live near me, uh, but you can go and make a, a contribution there and buy a cup of coffee or a cup of coffee and a sandwich or a cup of coffee, a sandwich and a book, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Whatever, whatever, whatever you want to make a contribution for, whatever amount, uh, you can do it there just a one-time a one-time thing. Also, the Heretic Shop. We have some new designs there for t-shirts, hoodies, hats, all the different things. I head over there and check that out. I'll put the link to it in the show notes along with Patreon, Buy Me a Coffee, uh, Forrest Clay, and Diana Groover. So all of that to say, that was a lot. Oh, and also obviously the link to the website uh, to win an Atheism for Lent ticket with the legend Pete Rollins. So uh, anyway, let's just roll the tape. This is episode number 135. It's my conversation with Diana Groover. Enjoy. Deconstructed these walls and I found a business Where the company line was the only way Church uncertainty that fears everything against it. Where the refugee suffers and the white man has it made. I won't do it anymore. It's taken me. everybody welcome back to the podcast today we're sitting down with my friend diana groover to talk about her new book uh, companions in the darkness subtitled seven saints who struggled with depression and doubt so diana welcome to the podcast i've been looking forward to connecting with you thanks glenn it's really good to be with you today thank you so before we get too much into your book uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself uh, who are you what do you do some of the the highlights of your journey 
So I live in South Central Pennsylvania with my husband and almost two-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. And I am a full-time mom and then also a writer. So I, I write on my own website and this book, obviously. And I also do writing and communications for a nonprofit called the Veer Institute. Hmm. And between all of those things, I keep myself pretty busy. We spent about <laughs> six years in New England. We went up there for me to go to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and then uh, circled back here to live closer to our families. That's awesome. Is this your first book that you wrote or do you have other books? Nope. This is the first one. The first one. Well, you went in with a, you went with a bang because it was a good one. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'll put the link for people in the show notes because uh, as I'm sure you guys are going to hear as we talk, it's definitely a book that I think everybody uh, should should pick up. Uh, so let's kick it up with a, a, bit, a big question. Why, why, in your opinion, do you think the topic of depression is so taboo in the church? Like I've heard so many times from usually like well-meaning church people that if you struggle with depression, it's because of something that you did or something that you're not doing. In some cases, like, you know, you're not reading your Bible enough. You're not going to church enough. You're not praying enough. You're not confessing your sins enough. Like the blame is essentially on you. And then in my experience, like to make matters worse, the church usually is not very equipped to help people navigate through the darkness. And so the one place that you should be able to go to get help Many times it's not only like shaming, but you get sent away to get help somewhere else. So like in your experience and your research, why do you think this is such a taboo topic? And like, has it always been this way? Yeah, I feel like we could talk about this for a while. We could have um, a series so, of episodes on that one question. We really could. <laughs> we really could. And I think it's a really important question, um, exactly for the reason you've described, because the community of faith should be one where we can come with our hurt yes. and find comfort and find companionship. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that that is so often not the case, it, it really grieves me. Um, mm. And I think uh, it's just, it's a poor reflection on what the church can be and should be. Mm. Um, I think part of the problem is a misconception or just misunderstanding of depression itself. Hmm. I think that there is an idea that depression is just, you're just really sad and you lose control over your emotions and, and it just, it goes too far. And if you could just snap yourself out of it or stop thinking about yourself as much, then it would go away. Hmm. And I think we have enough research and enough evidence that depression is not that mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for so many people, it's a diagnosable condition yeah. and it's not just something that you can, can cure by sheer willpower. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of it is just a misconception of what depression is. Um, and so there's a lot more blame placed on people because we assume that unlike another bodily illness that they might struggle with, that something like depression or anxiety is another one I think that has the same kind of stigma mm-hmm. that we expect people to just to just snap out of it. Yeah. So yeah. I think I think that's a part of the problem. I think another thing I think about related to that is just I don't think the problem is exclusive to depression. I think that within at least a lot of the church communities I've been a part of we get uncomfortable with pain that we cannot clearly assign blame for and that there is not a clear endpoint to, and that we can't just, you know, find a quick fix or reason it away or whatever. So any types of long pain or grief 
that's just complicated and messy and takes time and we may never fully recover from. I think it makes us uncomfortable. Um, I think that's a human problem. I don't just think it's a Christian problem. I think mm-hmm. in general, people are uncomfortable with pain. Sure, um, sure. And so I think depression falls into that category. Uh, you know, we can't assign blame for it. Some people will struggle with it either continuously or episodically for most of their life. And so whenever we're in that situation, we don't really know what to do. It makes us uncomfortable. And so we'd rather just not talk about it. So I, I think those are, those are some of the problems that I see in relation to your question about, has it always been this way? No, it hasn't, which mm. was really surprising to me in my research. A lot of the people um, whose stories I tell in this book lived in timeframes where they saw depression as a a physical problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it was at the time seen as a, a misbalance of humors. Now we talk about misbalance mm-hmm. brain chemistry, but right. it's kind of similar in that sense, right? Your body is out of balance and we need to do things. We need to support you relationally and spiritually while we're also helping you get connected to the medical care that you need mm-hmm. to get your body back in balance. Mm-hmm. And so there was less of this, um, kind of either or pitting pitting spirituality and and medical help against each other like i see in some circles today and more of just a you know if you had a broken leg we would take you to a doctor if you're they could have called it melancholy if you're melancholy we'll take you to a doctor and and we're going to support you along the way and so i think in that sense we have a lot to learn from people who have walked before us about how to treat this a lot more matter-of-factly and see what the church is equipped and and very should be very well positioned to do to help people who are depressed. Yeah. And the things that the church does need to pull from some outside resources like medical and mental health professionals. Yeah, and I think I think this is an important topic, not only because of people who might be in the pews struggling with depression, struggling with anxiety, but also people in positions of, of leadership. Uh, we have a, a guy who's been on the podcast before. His name is Steve Austin, and he wrote a oh, book. Yeah. You know him? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, he wrote a book called, uh, I forget the exact title of it, but it has to do with like um, the, the church and the psych ward or something like that. But he tells his story of how um, he was a pastor and he was struggling with all sorts of depression, anxiety, and he kept it to himself and ended up attempting to take his life. And thankfully, mm. um, he failed at that. And now he has this amazing uh, ministry where he helps people talk about these very personal topics. But the point being that, you know, if if it's hard enough to be in the pews and struggle with this, not nowhere to go, but when you're the go-to guy on Sunday mornings and you're the person who stands up every morning and is supposed to preach, you know, the gospel and give people hope. And when you're struggling in your own life and you feel like you have nowhere to go, like it is, it is a tragedy. So I think this is a really important topic to, to be addressing. And I, I hope that the stories in this book help to undermine some of that, because I think there's this idea that, um, you know, as a Christian, I shouldn't be depressed. Yeah. Um, as a Christian, I should have it all together. And especially yep. as a Christian leader, I shouldn't be depressed and I need to have it all together. And yet here we have Martin Luther, we've got Charles Spurgeon, mm. we've got Martin mm. Luther King Jr. Just to kind of, you know, name some of the big names sure. that people might know of. Mother Teresa's in, in there. Yeah. <laughs> Mother Teresa, you yeah. know, they were in, yeah. in positions of immense leadership 
an immense influence and they have left such a mark on the church mm-hmm. and yet they really struggled. Yeah. And so I think for me, their stories give me hope. First of all, that it's not, I mean, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, don't think that something strange is happening to you and don't think that all is over with your usefulness. Yeah. And really good. I think that that dissolves so much of the guilt mm-hmm. and the shame that comes with something kind of let's just take a deep breath (laughs) and say okay this this is where I am but this is not necessarily where I will always be and this is not going to be the end of my story that's right now on that that note you one of the things that you say early on in the book is that uh, the stories of these uh, seven people that you included kind of reassure you that you're not alone and you have this Mm -hmm. great quote you say uh, they remind me that I they remind me I am not the only one to walk this road that this experience is not an alien one uh, the lie is that sure the lie that surely no one has felt this is cut down by the truth that others in fact have and their presence makes me feel less isolated so how important is like the topic of companionship uh, for somebody who's struggling with depression like why why is it so important to know that you're not alone in that journey? I think it's critical. I think it's a big part of our ability to survive, really. Mm-hmm. De- part of depression is just the sense of isolation. Mm-hmm. For me, I, it always felt the word I could come up with was just a fog. Like there was this dense um, fog separating me from other people and yeah. separating me from God. And I was mm-hmm. just kind of stuck in the dark. And so whenever you're in that place, having people who can reach into that, and even though there might be moments where you feel like you can hardly believe it, having people who keep pushing back against that and saying, no, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Mm. You're not actually alone, no matter what you're feeling in this moment. Um, It it counteracts a lot of that. despair that depression can bring with it that you're just lost and no one will find you Mm. um in the book i talk about martin luther part of his advice was to flee solitude he says solitude is like poison when Mm. you're depressed and it just gives you a place for your those negative thought patterns to just keep cycling and cycling further and further down And so one of his big pieces of advice to people was don't be alone Mm. or to loved ones of people who were struggling with depression or thoughts of suicide. Don't let them be alone. Mm. Do whatever you can to keep pulling them out of that mental space and keep counteracting um, those thoughts and that feeling that, that maybe they are actually alone. Which feels so counterintuitive, right? Because when you are depressed, you are in that that state, everything inside of you says, I need to be alone. But the reality is, is that like you said, that could be the very worst thing for you. Yeah. And so I'm not saying it's easy advice to follow by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) Um, Because as you said, it it forces you in a place where you feel so weak and like you don't have the energy to do something to push against one of those big pools that that depression has. Hmm. So I think sometimes we limp along in following that advice. But I think even limping along in that way, it is sending us in the right direction. And sometimes it, it will save our lives. Yeah, that's really good. You talk about Martin Luther. He's one of the ones that in the book, your book really, I think, jumped out at me the most. Um, early on in the story, you point out that his uh, shifting theology, for lack of a better term, became a, a matter of public debate. 
uh, after he issued his 95 thesis and nailed it to the door of the church. And you kind of go on to talk about what you call waves of doubt and heartache that washed over him. And as I was thinking about that, it really connected with me because sometimes it feels like like this podcast is my own 95 thesis of sorts. And a lot of the, the episodes and ideas that we've kicked around have become uh, like a matter of public debate in their own way. And uh, over the last few years, like I can't tell you how many times I've literally thought about throwing in the towel on this project altogether because really of the heartache and the, the doubt that have come with some of the, the terrible things that have been said uh, to me or about me from people in my past who you know, I used to be very close to. And I think that's a common feeling like for people who are in a place of maybe rethinking important pieces of their faith or of their lives where, you know, what they believe, what they don't believe. And I guess kind of like Martin Luther received pushback from the church, people who are going through that deconstructing type thing often receive similar pushback from their own churches or families or friends or classmates, professors, whatever. So I'm wondering, you know, what insight do you have for those listeners today, like the ones who are rethinking their faith, they're feeling cast out maybe from their former tribe, um, their ideas have become a matter of debate in their circles of friendships or families, uh, maybe even throwing them into depression, heartache. Uh, so maybe even from the story of Martin Luther, like what advice would you have for that person today? Yeah, that's such a hard another place deep to... question. <laughs> another deep question. Yeah, let me just give you my five bullet points. And exactly. We'll um, yeah, it's such a hard place to sit in, isn't it? Mm, yeah. um, whenever it feels like your own internal ground is shifting and and people are are attacking you for it, or those relationships that you thought would be steady aren't anymore. Yeah. It's, it's hard. Mm. Um, one thing that comes to mind for me is uh, so Martin Luther. You mentioned the, you know, those intense feelings that came kind of in the midst of the, the Reformation when he was getting yeah. a lot of criticism. Many of them started before then uh, when he was a monk and mm -hmm. he deeply struggled with anxiety and, and felt like God was just intent on judgment. Mm -hmm. and, and so he, he lived in a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety. Um, and his mentor at the time said to him, look to the wounds of Christ. Mm. When you're in that place where you're feeling these deep, intense feelings of anxiety and you don't really know which ways up, look to the wounds of Christ. Mm. And I think in some ways that's part of one of the seeds of what got him into the trouble he, he eventually yeah, got himself right. into. Um, that's, that's what led him, I think, in many ways into the you know, his theological shift in, in the reformation. Mm. Um, but I think it's also what carried him through it whenever there was a lot of turmoil and there was a lot of things that were shifting mm. was just this, you know, I, if I want to understand what God is like, I need to look at Jesus Yeah, <laughs> and I need to look at Jesus pouring out his love on yeah. me. Yeah. And so I think that, um, and that, that might sound like a Sunday school answer, but I think it's true. And I think, especially thinking about his life, that was one of the foundational things for him. It's just, yeah. I have to keep looking back at the wounds of Christ because yeah. that is where I see God's love. That is where I see God's mercy and it's not going to immediately fix my pain and solve yeah. all of my problems, but it will give me this place to focus my vision 
to help me continue to make my way through the darkness. Um, So that's one of the things I think of with him kind of as a tangent on that. I, I think one of the things that that principle has reminded me of is that, you know, no matter what we feel or who else, you know, relationally might forsake us, there is a God who relentlessly keeps company with us in the dark. Mm. And this is something that I feel like I have just had to anchor myself to in the midst of depression and other seasons of struggle is, you know, I can be honest with God and say, I don't like this. This hurts. I don't know where you are. I don't know why you're not stepping in here in the way that I would want you to, but you're here somewhere, Mm. (laughs) somewhere you are here. And I think that's another thing that's just this kind of when everything else is shifting, that's a place that we can latch ourselves into. Um, There's this beautiful story of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. that I I share in the book. He was in solid, he was put in solitary confinement at one point and, and he couldn't contact his lawyers and he couldn't find out what else was going on with the other people who had been arrested. And he talks about just this intense darkness that he felt in that moment. And after things worked themselves out, he, he reflected on that. And he said, you know, I realized I had never been in solitary confinement Mm -hmm. because God had been my cellmate. Mm -hmm. And I think that is such a beautiful picture of that foundational foundational principle for us, you know, like he was in solitary confinement. We might be depressed. We might have people that we love reject us as he experienced, Mm. Um, you know, whatever the case might be, we are not alone in that. Um, I think that ties back to what you said about companionship, right? Just the idea that, like you said, you're not alone. And I think for, for me, like just listening to you talk now and reflecting on my piece of my own journey that I just shared with you, like it was, for early on, like in that process of deconstruction just felt very, very lonely. Like I remember Mm -hmm. feeling like I'm out in this wilderness. I feel like there's nobody here who understands me and I don't know what to do with all these thoughts and all these ideas. And I had one professor who really has stuck by my side, who is my professor in seminary. And he's been very instrumental. But one of the things he said to me was just what you said is that, um, you know, meditate and think about and focus your mind on, on Christ and, and the wounds of Christ. And he said, you know, he said not to like make too strong of a parallel, but he said, you have to remember that like one of the, one of the primary reasons that Jesus was crucified was because his ideas were so radical and because his, his love was so inclusive. And he said, at the end of the day, he said, that's what you're trying to do is to build a theology, to build a way of understanding God that is much more inclusive than anything that you've ever come across. And he said, that's going to get you crucified in a way. He said, sometimes that's going to rock the boat. So he said, if you can let that be your starting place of finding your companion in Christ. And he said, let it kind of go from there. And then, you know, we started the podcast and uh, we started a Facebook group and now there's like 250 people in there. And we call it kind of like a lifeboat for people who maybe have Mm -hmm. fallen off the the ship of the church and they're kind of floating out there in the water and it's just a place to kind of come and dry off and, you know, find more people 
like yourself and we have a Marco Polo group and uh, we send videos back and forth and it's just a place where people can feel connected. And I found in myself, like that has done wonders for me because now all Mm -hmm. of a sudden I don't feel alone. And I have these conversations with people like you and I feel less alone. Like I feel like there's people out there who have experienced similar things or are experiencing the same things. And it just releases so much of a burden. Yeah. 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 So I think that's really, really key. So, um, man, now I'm really deep into my own thoughts. (laughs) 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 It's just to shed some tears now, but, uh, what, what to kind of go into another direction, like what of all these stories in the book, like which one would you say is the most influential for you? I keep coming back to William Cooper. He mm. was a, a hymn writer in uh, 18th century England. He was actually really good friends with John Newton, who's the mm. man who wrote Amazing Grace, which yep. anybody I feel like who's even remotely grown up in church has heard that hymn. Um, and I, I don't know what it is fully that, that drew me to him. I just couldn't stop when I was researching. I just, I just wanted to keep spending time with this guy. Mm. Um, I, I think part of what really was meaningful to me about his stories is he is a writer. Um, he was a poet and he talks about how um, he, he called poetry his greatest remedy in the face of depression. Mm. And just seeing him, you know, process his experience and also find some escape from his feelings of depression um, was really beautiful. And it, it really connected with me because I, I can relate to that, you know, finding in, in writing and, and the process of writing and, um, you know, the, the groundedness of writing, um, finding some, some relief and some comfort in that and something mm. to, to give me something that was, you know, fruitful and, and generative to pour myself into related to what we've just been talking about. So, so Cooper struggled deeply with depression. Um, mm. He several times throughout his life attempted to, to commit suicide mm. and he, he really deeply struggled. Um, and part of that struggle that I find to be particularly tragic is at one point he had a dream that he believed to be from God, um, which he believed to be God telling him that he was forever lost and outside of grace and could Mm. never be saved. And um, he believed it was true. And it didn't matter who tried to talk him out of it. He was just relentless. You know, the the gospel is true, but it's not true for me. Mm. And so he lived not only with this depression, but also with very deep despair for Mm. throughout the last several decades of his life. Um, but in the midst of that, there was, there was one moment where he had another dream (laughs) in which he, he just describes it as having this, this deep sense of God's closeness. It was like, you know, he was stuck in dark so much. And it was like this moment of life light. And he said, I love thee more now than those who see thee daily. Mm. And I have just found that to be such a beautiful statement. It kind of brings tears to my eyes a little bit. Mm. Just, you know, he was so stuck in this darkness and so deep in despair. And yet there was still that, that very stubborn seed of faith in his mm. heart. Um, and to say that after decades of depression, you know, I, I love, I love you more now, God, than, than people who can see and feel you every day. Mm. I, I hope I can have that kind of faith. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So it's, it's things like that, that I just, I, I really was drawn to him. And I feel like I learned a lot from, from his experience and, and also from the people who going back to the companionship piece, you know, the people who kept company with him, he had some great friends mm. and, um, and they're why he survived. And yeah. so even learning from them too, about how, how can I be a good friend to those who are depressed? Yeah. Um, their stories are a gift. <laughs> mm. I think it's important. Like, you know, just kind of alluded to that when you get to that deepest, darkest point, it obviously doesn't feel like it in the moment, but when you do, or you are able to come out the other side, oftentimes you look back at those darkest moments and you realize that those were the places where like your faith sometimes was formed the deepest. Mm. I know for my own self, like just looking back on some of the hardest moments of my own life. Like I early on in seminary, I went through a really difficult time of depression and just a really dark time with my, my parents were going through divorce and there was like a lot of stuff happening. And like, I remember sitting in the office of my advisors, like crying. It's just felt like everything was, you know, falling apart. And I had this huge credit load I was trying to get through and trying to work a full-time job and so many things happening. And like in the moment, it just felt like there was no possible way out. But like, as I look back on that almost, I don't know, 15 years, whatever later, like it just, I realize how much of me was formed in those moments. And as much as I wished at the time that those moments weren't there, now I don't know if I would want them to be taken away because I realize as hard as they were, how much I was formed in those times. Yeah. And we don't always get to see that in real time. You know, oh. it, it feels so much better if you can see some of that fruit growing in the midst of it, but yeah. um, sometimes we get the gift of seeing it after the fact. And sometimes we just have to trust that it's there, even if we can't name it yet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And sometimes I think it's not even, not even you who will get to see the fruit. It might be generations mm -hmm. to come that will see the fruit of the yeah. darkness that you endured. And that's a really hard thing to imagine. I think a hard thing to swallow, but I read a quote the other day that said something about, I'm going to botch it up completely, but something like you, you plant the seeds and, you know, maturity comes when you're planting seeds and realize that you may never sit in the shade of the tree. It might be mm. two or three generations later that sit in the shade of that tree. And so I think that sometimes the, the hard times that we endure and the darkness that we endure will ultimately create light for someone else down the road. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So another question for you would be, kind of what do you think, like talk to the person today who's listening and maybe they're feeling depressed. They're realizing they are depressed. We're obviously stepping out of a, a difficult year in 2020 and 2021 is off to its own kind of <laughs> bang of a start. But uh, yep. Yep. but uh, people just carrying, you know, baggage and pain and wounds kind of weighing them down. Like what are some practical steps that somebody can take outside of getting um, professional help? Like what, what are some daily things that you think people could, could do that maybe you've gleaned from the stories in your book that people can do on a regular basis to begin to formulate maybe healthier habits to begin to kind of climb out of that darkness they might feel. Yeah. So I, I love that you said outside of professional help, because I think that's a really important starting that's point. That's primary. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I mean, we mentioned it already, but I'll, I'll mention it again, mm -hmm. this whole principle of fleeing solitude, which yep. I know feels hard in the moment. And I know now still with the pandemic ongoing, um, it can 
require a little more creativity or a different form than it could in normal life. Um, but finding ways to, um, even in just little ways to, to reach out to people and, and embrace the, the companionship of people around you mm. is really important. Um, another thing that I have found to be really helpful that I've learned from a couple of the people in, in this book is um, finding things that keep you grounded in just the tangible goodness of the world. There's mm-hmm. a lot of bad things yeah. and there are a lot of yeah. things out of our control, um, but there are, are still, there is still goodness mm-hmm. and there is still delight and there is still beauty. Mm-hmm. And so finding ways to just slow yourself down and pay attention to where you are and find some of those little moments of delight and goodness and beauty can be really helpful. So sometimes for me, that's just slowing down enough to pay attention to the way that my coffee mug feels in my hand Mm -hmm. and the warmth coming through it and the smell of the coffee and the way that the steam looks swirling up off the top. when the weather is nicer, it would be going out with my daughter into our little garden and digging in the dirt. <laughs> um, maybe it's getting outside and going for a walk and just breathing in the air. Whatever it is for you that just keeps you grounded in the present tangible reality and, and keeps your eyes open to some of those little bits of goodness yeah, um, can be really, really helpful and important. One of the um, things I've been realizing is that like my, my mind is often in the past or in the future creating anxiety and creating doubt, but my body is always in the present. Mm -hmm. And so if I can kind of connect more with my body, and like you said, connecting the things that are most grounded in the world, there's something, there's something deep in there that I think begins to um, kind of break through that darkness for sure. Yeah. And I think like we were talking about earlier, depression just kind of pulls you into your own thoughts. Yeah. And there's something about moving our bodies or paying attention to our bodies that, that just, at least for a moment can pull you out of that, mm-hmm. which I think is, is always a good thing <laughs> Yeah. To, to be able to find just the littlest bit of relief from that. Yeah. Um, w- one other thing that I think of and uh, and this is, I don't know, I don't know how to, how to, it, it might look different for different people as sure. far as the practical practice of what this looks like, <laughs> but finding some way to tether ourselves to hope, <laughs> mm. um, you know, our, depression makes us feel a lot of things and it can whisper a lot of lies as yeah. far as, you know, you're not, you're, you're worthless, you're a failure, you're alone, whatever, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of them. Hmm. Um, but that realization that even though that feeling is real, that feeling when you're depressed is not the ultimate litmus test of reality. Hmm. And so we need to find some way to just keep hope in front of our eyes and keep some sort of truth in front of our eyes. You know, we, we're not in this place because we're failures. We're not alone. There is something bigger than this. This is Mm. not the end of our story. And so, you know, whatever that looks like for you to just keep that hope continuously in front of you. um, I I think it's not a quick fix, Mm. but again, it at least kind of keeps turning your eyes back in the right direction and just kind of pushes back a little bit against that darkness and gives you a little bit of light to stand in. Yeah. I think it's important. Like you, you become 
almost like mindful of the negative mantras that are in your head, you know, just all throughout the the day of maybe I'm not good enough or I'm not enough. And then being intentional with creating new mantras, like for myself, I've been really trying to be more consistent with like a contemplative prayer Mm -hmm. um, where I just kind of try to sit in silence, um, be mindful, like you said, of my body, of my, of my breath, kind of letting that connect me to the, the present. But then like, I know the, the negative mantras that are in my head because I hear them all the time, you know, because they're always, they're always there screaming, but trying to, once I kind of can quiet myself enough to then maybe introduce a new mantra. And it might just be as simple, like I have my great, great grandfather's rosary beads. And sometimes I'll just hold them and go through one beat at a time and just say over and over again, like I am enough and I am worthy and I am loved and just kind of creating those mantras so that when the negative ones do come into my head uh, throughout the course of the day, which they do very often, those new ones that I'm trying to introduce will hopefully be right there on their tail uh, to be introduced as well. So that's kind of what I've been trying to do to tether myself to hope. <laughs> yeah. And just that foundational principle of, you know, I am a beloved child of God. Yeah, and that is that's enough. right. That's right. That is enough. That's right. I had a professor in school who used to say that the, the issue of my value has been settled at the cross. Like mm. The issue of my value has nothing to do with what I do, what I don't do, what I can do, what I can't do. But if I need to know my value or anybody needs to know their value, all they need to do is look at the cross. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Meditate on the wounds, right? <laughs> exactly. Here, yeah. Back to Martin Luther again. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Really yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we're just about uh, running, running out of time. Um, I got a clock back in for l- from lunch pretty soon. But before I let you go, where can people find you uh, online? So you can find me at my website, which okay. is dianagroover.com. I'm also on Twitter at Diana Groover and occasionally on Facebook at Diana Groover Writer. Awesome. And uh, what other kind of things do you write? So a lot of my stuff is about uh, discipleship and spiritual formation in everyday life. So, you know, what does it look like to follow Jesus in the day to day? And so some of it's, um, you know, personal reflections or stories and just trying to train my own vision on, on what it looks like to live that out day by day. Awesome. Well, I will put the links to all of your stuff in the show notes and maybe we can do this again sometime. Oh, that would be so good. It's been really good to talk to you. Thank you, Diana. Tell me what you want Because I don't know who to be And I never thought